the British Cavalry of the Peninsular War. Yep, that campaign fought in Portugal, Spain and the south of France between 1808 and 1814. Wellington famously said they were guilty of galloping at everything, and they've been called mere brainless gallopers. But how did this reputation come about, and is it fair? What about their performance at actions such as Sagoon, their skill at reconnaissance and outpost duty? Well, my guest today is Mark Thompson, good friend of the show, author of multiple books about the Peninsula War. You can see links for those in the description below. He'll be answering all of these questions and explaining how the British cavalry stacked up against their French opponents. My first book was on, on the Battle of Albuera, which somewhat scarily was published 30 years ago, and I'm only 25. <laughs> in researching the Battle of Albuera, it was interesting because the cavalry, although the British cavalry don't really feature in the battle, they had a fairly significant role in the overall campaign. And I just got interested in, in building some knowledge to write about the battle. So obviously Albuera is famous for cavalry charges, but a cavalry charge by the French where the Vista Legion and the 2nd Hussars destroyed John Colborne's brigade. The British cavalry played a very small part, but not, not necessarily unimportant. But leading up to the battle, we have the actions of, of uh, cavalry brigade commander Robert Long. Uh, we have uh, George Madden involved. Both of these will come back into the story later on. Long, very unusual, was replaced as a commander of the cavalry uh, on the morning of the battle as the manoeuvres were started. He was replaced by William Lumley, the commander of the uh, British 2nd Division, which was the one that went on to get uh, semi-annihilated by the French due to the, not being too fine a point, stupidity of the temporary <laughs> commander of the 2nd Division. One wonders if Albuera could have been different if Lumley hadn't taken command of the cavalry. Anyway, m moving on, Napier comes into the story with his History of the Peninsula War, 1831-ish. And the cavalry in Albuera generates a an enormously lengthy correspondence, starting with documents called Strictures on Napier's history and further strictures, and then involving General Long, which it turns out being over 1,200 pages. So that's three full books, four full books, talking mainly about Albuera and the actions of the British cavalry. So um, came about in, in an odd way, but still very interested in how they performed. So guys, just to quickly interrupt, this is the next morning. Last night I interviewed Mark, it was a live stream. Some of you may have seen that. I've just re-edited it because there were some technical problems. I'm jumping in now, fixing those and putting it back up. So hopefully you'll still enjoy it. Apologies, I'm looking a bit scruffy, but I want to get it done as quickly as possible. So the first quote here from which Mark sent me in advance, it said, they were good horsemen for the English and naturally the best horsemen in Europe. They were far better mounted and were the most excellent swordsmen and manly hand-to-hand -hand combat of cavalry is far more congenial to the spirit of our people than the miserable trigger-pulling system of infantry warfare. Second quote from the same man, we were told to powder our heads, to square our hats, to know our place on parade, to get drunk on port wine, but never to presume to think ourselves equal to the French. I think the reason I picked out these two quotes um, was because they came from the same person. And when I read them, I, I, I'm seeing two different things in the quotes. He's almost contradicting himself. 
Now, th these quotes came from a, a monthly magazine called the United Service Journal that was first published in 1829. And the, the anonymous author of these quotes, J.M., started a dialogue, dialogue in 1830, which continued bickering about the cavalry up to 1834. It burst into life again, 1837, 1838, and 1840, 1841. So really, you, you go back to the time of the, the events and the Napoleon it was, and the, the, the performance of the British cavalry has never not generated significant debate. So I think they're interesting because one guy saying two things, you know, one were the best swordsman ever, and then were actually pretty useless. So, you know, even one person can't make up his mind. <laughs> well, let's follow that up well, with these other quotes from Michael Glover in Wellington as a military commander. He wrote, the main functions of cavalry are reconnaissance, the maintenance of the outposts, shock action in battle, i.e. the charge, and the pursuit of a broken enemy. The British showed themselves more or less deficient in the first three of these. They had little opportunity to show their ability in the fourth. Now that seems rather harsh, but before we get too much into that, Mark, I wanted to just backtrack a little bit and say, what, what sort of quality of recruits did the cavalry regiments have? Were, were they getting the best men? And, and if so, what sort of training were they getting? As, as I read the history, I, I don't think your average trooper in the cavalry was selected any differently to... The, the, the average soldier in the line regiments, people volunteered and took their bounty and, and joined the regiment in the same basic way. They then got a level of training, which was partially up to the regimental colonel, but I'm partially up to regulations that were trying to be introduced at the time. So I don't believe there was any prior requirement for horsemanship. So all that would have been taken on after the troopers arrived. Um, Padgett, who will come into the story later on, uh, was at the depot, the cavalry depot in Woodbridge. And the cavalry regiments, almost in rotation, rotated through Woodbridge, where they were taught the basics of horsemanship. So he, here we see a, you know, sort of one of the people who appears later in our story taking an important role in the training of cavalry. So David Dundas, again, like he did for the infantry, also introduced regulations for the cavalry with a lengthy title of instructions and regulations for the formations and movements of cavalry. This was written in 17, well, published in 1796 and based his experience in the Low Countries. Interestingly, this document focuses on manoeuvre. It doesn't really touch on the charge or any of the outposts or reconnaissance work that was essential for a lot of cavalry. Um, quoting from Ian Fletcher in his book Galloping at Everything, which is the, the, the eternal classic quote, uh, Ian Fletcher's view was that to most cavalry officers, the charge was the only thing that mattered and everything else was, was less important. We'll talk about some of these things a bit more, but just a couple of quotes to try and say what was the level of training at this point. Uh, I'm picking up some quotes from William Tompkinson of the 16th Light Dragoons, a very well-known uh, biography and diary of the time. Two quotes from Tomkinson. All ranks were untrained in the maintenance of outposts. When they came abroad, they had all this to learn. Second quote. In England, I never saw or heard of cavalry taught to charge, disperse and form. You know, ba based on 40 years of, of reading British diaries, Tomkinson is one of the ones you trust 
So if he's saying that, there is some uh, sort of validity in the statements. Kincaid of the rifles. If we saw a British dragoon approaching in full speed, it excited no great curiosity among us. But when we saw one of the first Tsar's King's German Legion coming at a gallop, we knew it was high time to gird on our swords. So I think yeah, the, the, the views at the time were that there wasn't a lot of confidence in the British cavalry. And presumably, you know, the officers have to take responsibility for that. What do we know about them? Were they too busy spending their time, you know, sabraging champagne bottles? Or from what we've come across, especially you in your research, were they actually, did they take their job seriously? Did they know what they were doing? And we're talking more at troop and squadron level here before we get on to the senior commanders. Yeah, um, there's an element of don't know in the answer, but if, if you can maybe pick up a couple of quotes from Wellington at the time, just you know, what's he thinking about the confidence in, in, in his officers? So a couple of quotes from Wellington, and now try and come back and answer the question a bit better. Wellington, I considered our cavalry so inferior to the French for want of order that although I considered one of our squadrons a match for two of the French, yet I did not care to see four British, uh, that squadrons, opposed to four French, and still more so as the numbers increased. They could gallop, but they could not preserve their order. And this quote was well before he did the galloping at everything quote. Uh, Wellington spent a lot of time reminding his senior officers to be gentle with his cavalry and you know, to, to keep them under very close control. Another quote from Wellington, notwithstanding the acknowledged superiority of our men and horses upon repeated trials, we must continue to use our cavalry with great management in favourable situations and above all, with discretion. So at the very top, there was a nervousness about the, the, the actions of, of the cavalry. In terms of answering the question, you know, were, were, shall we call them the, the subaltern, the junior officers, you know, what sort of level of training and competence did they have? I think the answer is probably not a lot, and unless they had had some education themselves outside of the norm, they would have picked up the training on joining the regiment. At, I'm guessing the more senior you got with the regiments as you got up to the guards, there were much more important things than, than learning about outpost duty or things like that. So probably an understandable nervousness about letting cavalry, use, letting cavalry loose, particularly in large numbers. Yeah, and we're going to get on to some specific examples of that in a few moments. But first, I wanted to bring up this quote. And again, this was one Mark sent me in advance. This is the Duke of York, obviously the, the, the top fella in the army at the time. He said in 1811, he reported the extreme difficulty of finding a su sufficient number of general officers of talent and experience to command the cavalry in the field. Now, I think that's a great point then to raise and to bring Mark back in as we start talking about some of the senior officers in the cavalry and their, their strengths and weaknesses. So, Mark, what do, you, what do you have to say about that quote? Yeah, it, it, it kind of fits the bill. But remember that this isn't just necessarily about competence and experience. The, the, the issues about rank and the issues about serving um, under sort of junior officers it rears its head here all the time. If we remember that Wellington was... Uh, a very, very junior Lieutenant General when he arrived in the peninsula 
which meant anybody senior uh, would not serve under him. In some ways, the, the same issue was around in the cavalry that some of the senior officers had never really served in the field, didn't really have any competence. Uh, in a number of cases, were asking to go to the peninsula uh, and he couldn't get rid of them. And really until 1813, he had to live with whatever was sent out and he had little control on who was sent and little control on getting rid of the ones who, who did not fit his standards. And when we start talking about some of these characters, that there are some who fit into both of those categories. Well, we've got a question from a guest here. Let me bring it up on screen. JB says, question, did the British cavalry have their own horses shipped over or did they use local horses? Is that something you can answer, Mark? Yes, it is. Thanks, JB, for the question. Um, in a lot of cases, the British uh, brought their horses with them. It was a challenging thing to do because a horse that spends several weeks or at worst several months on a boat is not fit for anything when it comes off. So there has to be significant periods of bringing the horse back up to uh, fitness to allow it to perform. As the war went on and horses started dying, uh, it became more and more difficult to source them. They tried to source them locally and even from 1808 onwards that was difficult and as we get later on the war 1811 1812 they were trying to source them from america they were sending officers into north africa to try and source them there so it was a mixture of all of these things so it seems like there's a there's a whole book could be written just just on sourcing horses during the peninsula <laughs> there is a one PhD I know of on the subject, and there are a couple of books that sort of like that touch on these. So uh, it's there if you if you really are that interested. Could you tell us? Could you give us a brief overview of some of the key commanders that Wellington had for his cavalry in the peninsula, and which ones? And I'll bring a few up on screen now. Which ones were generally pretty professional and did a solid job, and which ones were literally mental in some cases? I'm going to kind yeah. of do them in time order. Uh, the, the, the first one who came out in, in 1809, William Payne, he commanded the cavalry for about 12 months, uh, including at, you know, at the Battle of Talavera. What Payne's notable more, and I don't mean this particularly sort of detrimental, he's notable more for the absence of comment on his leadership than anything. Uh, but maybe that's a good thing that he didn't do anything catastrophically wrong. And we will talk about Talavera and the horses later. Um, somebody who's much more well known is, is Henry Padgett, who had been there from 1809, um, well, in fact, really from 1808. He served with Moore uh, through Moore's uh, advance in, into Spain in, in the, the autumn and winter of 1808, and then served in, in the, the Corona campaign. Uh, we'll talk about that a little bit later. Unfortunately for Padgett, who based on, on his performance in 1808-9, would certainly be up in the better than average category. Uh, he, he did the career limiting activity of eloping with Wellington's sister-in-law, <laughs> which made serving with or under Wellington somewhat problematic. He was offered the command of the cavalry, I think it was 1813, and declined for reasons that weren't explained. Uh, he did, of course, serve at Waterloo, where most people will know that uh, it wasn't his best day, is maybe a, the politest way of putting it. 
the, the, the name that comes up most often through the Peninsula War is Stapleton Cotton. Man, you can see the picture on your screen, permanently worried, uh, seems to be the expression on, on his face. <laughs> uh, interesting character. I, I would describe him as a team player, a safe and a reliable pair of hands rather than brilliant. And that is pretty much exactly what Wellington needed. He didn't want anybody coming out uh, and leading glorious charges and, and losing the small amount of quality cavalry that he had. Um, and he served pretty much through to 1814 with a couple of, uh, of gaps through to injury or, or just going home. So Stapleton Cotton um, is a consistent present presence with Wellington, which I think is very useful. Even when he was wounded just after Salamanca, uh, Wellington still wrote to him in the in the UK to ask his, his opinion on things. So Wellington clearly rated him. Some of the characters who, who will come up a little bit more later on. Robert Long. Um, there is a book about him if anyone was interested. But interesting character. He was an experienced cavalry officer. His first command was York Hussars 1800. Um, he then went to the Royal Military College just after it was established. So he was one of the first students through there, which taught essentially staff officers and the, and the more technical side of, of logistics and management in the army. He was made Lieutenant Colonel in the 2nd Dragoon Guards 1808, later transferred to 15th Dragoons, where he fell out with the Colonel, the Duke of Cumberland. So this is a guy who, who's you know, pretty knowledgeable, pretty experienced. Uh, my notes say he arrived at the peninsula in March 188, but I think it was probably slightly later than that. It was actually March 1811. Um, bearing in mind his experience, he, he fairly rapidly fell out with Beresford and his uh, chief of staff, Benjamin Durban, on, on the, the activities. Beresford was working in the south of the peninsula, uh, moving down to capture uh, the fortress of Badajoz, which had been unexpectedly lost at the beginning of March. So Long's just arrived. Um, he was in command of the cavalry at an action near Campomayo on the 25th of March, 1811, which was handled not to Beresford's satisfaction at all. And he made this fact clear to uh, Beresford. Um, few days later, 16th of April, another action at Los Santos, where again, he, he did not perform to the satisfaction as Beresford. Yeah, Beresford may have been slightly unfair, but Long rapidly developed um, a reputation for moaning and complaining. And in some ways, being a little bit nervous about everything he was doing. So I can understand why Beresford was, was, was cautious when he was commanding all the cavalry. But things came to a head uh, at the withdrawal towards Albuera on the days before the battle, where 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 Long arrived in Beresford's opinion far too early, uh, having also rather stupidly pointed out the fact that the Spanish cavalry commander was senior to Long. So probably for a couple of reasons, Long was actually replaced on the morning of the battle uh, by Lumley. I, I, I talked about this a little bit earlier. Um, so. Experienced guy, but the, the feeling he got is just a little bit out of his depth when he was given some independent command. And again, I'll talk about this a bit more later, but through this period um, in April and again in June, two substantial cavalry pickets, sort of you know, about 60 troopers in size, were lost through to the inefficiency of somebody. 
and, and Long was blamed for both of these. And I will talk them again a bit later. Um, and Long was eventually replaced in June 1811 by William Erskine. Now, this is probably better than anything sums up what Beresford uh, thought of Robert Long. So th these are two classic quotes some of, some of you might have heard before about William Erskine. Wellington writing to Beresford. Sir William Erskine desires to command your cavalry till Fane, they were expecting Fane to come back, till Fane comes out. You will find him more intelligent and useful than anybody you have. He is blind, which is against him at the head of cavalry, but he is very cautious. Probably even more damning was Torrens writing and describing Erskine in 1810. No doubt he is sometimes a little mad, but in his lucid intervals, he is an, an uncommonly clever fellow, and I trust he will have no fit during the campaign. Though he did look a little wild as he embarked. So you know, Long has, <laughs> has you made confidence. such an well, Long, Long has made such an impression on Beresford and, and Wellington that, being very crude about it, that they preferred a blind madman to to him, <laughs> uh, and tragically. <laughs> Tragically, Erskine did die by suicide in 1813, so he very clearly did have mental health problems. But but this is maybe the challenge that, that Wellington's having to face with getting competent commanders for his cavalry. He doesn't have a lot of control over who's coming out. I'm going to throw in another little guy. He, he does pop up a little bit later around Albuera, but George Allen Madden. It's probably a name you've never heard of. Uh, fascinating story which i'll try and do quite quickly he was a well-respected competent cavalry officer he was court-martialed in egypt in 1801 for accusing his commanding officer of perjury um the court-martial noted that um madden's claim that the commanding officer committed perjury was factually correct but it was dishonorable for an officer to accuse his commanding officer of perjury. So I assume following the rules of the letter, they had no choice to dismiss him, but none of them would actually speak against him. And several wrote letters in support of, of Madden's position. He was allowed to um, sell his commission, which was very unusual. So clearly there was some sympathy with Madden's situation in the horse guards. Moving swiftly on a few years, he and became an inspecting officer of cavalry at home in 1805 and then was offered a position in the Portuguese army 1809 and started training the newly reformed Portuguese cavalry. And he, he actually had one of the few successes with Portuguese cavalry in September 1810, where he laid an ambush for some French cavalry who, who were chasing some broken spanish cavalry attacked and broke the french cavalry so he, he clearly had got some training going and, and the, the troopers performed well on the day so after mm. the, after the success of september 1810 at fuente de cantos um madden was pretty much attached to the local spanish army uh, and and he served with them over the coming months up to the battle of gabora in february 1811 where sue who was besieging Badajoz attacked the Spanish army and, and destroyed the whole thing and Madden and his Portuguese troops ran like the rest of the Spanish army and Madden was absolutely distraught after all the work he put in that 
when, when the chips came down, uh, the Portuguese ran like the Spanish cavalry did around them. Uh, Madden argued, of course, that it was because the Spaniards' uh, cavalry ran away that it unnerved his troopers. So go, going back to and picking up that question now, um, the Spanish uh, armies working with Wellington were constantly asking if if Wellington would give him uh, give them some British cavalry to work with them because the Spanish cavalry at the time were um, flighty is probably a good word to use and that they needed some cavalry you know to, to give some stability to their forces. Wellington was understandably cautious about giving British cavalry units over to the to the Spanish army but he, he was more comfortable with asking Portuguese troops to work with them. So I think the answer to the question is, is that certainly the Spanish rated the British cavalry at the time um, and the Portuguese never really worked independently in that, in that form so they never had need to ask for British cavalry as such. M moving on a little bit, you know, I'll finish this story on Madden because he's such a fascinating guy. Yeah. Um, and we will, I think we'll, we'll talk maybe about the Portuguese cavalry later. But because there were so few Portuguese cavalry and the issues at equipping them, Madden actually was transferred to command a Portuguese infantry brigade in 1812. And probably a bit unfairly, but I think he's the only general I've ever come across who Wellington sacked. Uh, and he sacked him in June 13 when, because of seniority, he was going to take command of the British 6th Infantry Division. And he was doing that based on his seniority in the Portuguese army. Because he'd been made a, a Portuguese Brigadier General in 1809, he was, I think, the third most senior person in the Portuguese army, with Beresford being first. And he was actually senior to most generals serving with Wellington at the time. So Wellington did not want him to control the British Infantry Division and basically said to Beresford, send the guy back to Lisbon. I do not want him here. So I think very unfairly he he was sacked and I don't think it was all his fault. Okay, okay well, I mean, Madden didn't actually serve again in the peninsula because of this this issue, yeah, the eternal issue of seniority. Uh, because he was one of the first batch of officers transferred to Portugal, he got the double jump in rank that caused so much angst amongst British, British serving officers who suddenly found the junior officer became their senior. So... Um, but by this time, we're, we're up towards the end of 1813, so the, the war is effectively over at that point. So I, I think Matt Madden we have, was a bit unlucky in what happened, but you know, he, he, he did um, have a positive success on the army. Let's, let's crack on, Mark. There's not too many questions there. There is one, actually. Let me just go back. Bear with me. It is from General Grenade, great name who says, do we know what the French thought of the British cavalry? Now, we are going to talk about the French in a little bit, but is that something you can comment upon, Mark? Yeah, I, I think it's, it's probably reasonable to do it now, because I'm not going to say much about the French cavalry later, but I, I, I think initially at the early stage of Peninsular War, probably uh, contempt was probably a good enough word. The French did not believe the British cavalry would be very good. But having been smacked around the head a few times through uh, 1809 and 1810, 
I think they began to to change their view and, and realise, certainly in smaller unit actions, that the British were very capable. Uh, and part of that reason, not putting down the British cavalry, was their horses were generally better quality and better fed, which meant on, on a chase forwards or backwards that the British cavalry had an advantage. I'm, I'm going to talk about probably the, the, the most well-known of the British cavalry uh, generals of this period, which is John Le Marchand, who, based on his um, experience in, in the Low Countries in the 1790s, he, he designed uh, first a, a new style light cavalry sabre, which was adopted by the army, and then developed the rules and regulations for the sword exercise of the... Sorry, let me start again. He developed the rules and regulations for the sword exercise of the cavalry, which again became the standard drill for the cavalry. So Le Marchand, based on the experience, clearly could also turn that in, in, into how can we improve the army based, based on, on what we've seen. Um, the king rewarded uh, Le Marchand with a, a lieutenant colonelcy in the 7th Light Dragoons when Paget was the senior lieutenant colonel, so they would have known each other. Le Marchand then went on based as an experience about trying to improve the quality of the army to propose the formation of what became the Royal Military College and that was formed in uh, 1799 uh, and Le Marchand stayed there until July 1811 when he went out to the peninsula um, and really he performed fairly well particularly at Salamanca which we will talk about later but there were some suggestions he didn't necessarily get on very well with cotton. But Le Marchand was you know, the, probably the best of you know, the British cavalry commanders at the time. And last and absolutely certainly least, we'll talk about John Slade, who was there from 1808. And Wellington did not manage to get rid of him until 1813. Uh, his incompetence was really understood from the you know, from the very first days. You know, caught from Padgett, this is this is 1808, Moore's campaign, said to one of his ADCs to ride after that damn stupid fellow and take care he committed no blunder. Pakenham, he let no possible opportunity of inaction pass him, pretending not to comprehend orders which the events passing before him would have been comprehensible to a trumpeter a curse to the cause and a disgrace to the service. It's, it's, it's difficult to find any comment about John Slade that isn't that clear and categoric about his, his incompetence. Um, and, but, but Slade commanded brigades through most of this war and his behaviour, it's felt, gradually eroded the confidence in his troops to a point where one of the... Uh, actions we'll talk about later uh, I think you know three years of working with Slade there came to its logical consequence. I mean one one has to ask Mark sorry to interrupt you but one has to ask how did he stay in the job so long if he was clearly incompetent and everybody could see it it's crazy. Friends in high places. Fair point. Well, um, well Wellington had no authority to send officers home but yeah, until about 1813, where I think his successes got him a lot more flexibility. Slade was sent home in 1813, about the, the time that Wellington got his field marshal's baton. But before that, he just had to live with whatever turned up. 
So uh, is there any other commanders you want to talk about before we speak about some specific actions? No, let, let, let's move on. I, I think they're, they're the ones that typically sort of come up when you're talking uh, about command in the... Uh, yeah. So we're talking higher command here, regimental or, or more typically brigade rather than small unit actions. Brilliant. Okay, well, Brilliant. I'll let okay, you well, take it, Mark. What, which ones do you think are worthy of talking about that really illustrate both the strengths and weaknesses of British cavalry during the peninsula? Okay, well, I, I'm, I'm going to follow the thread we, where, where we currently are, which is John Slade, uh, and, and talk about what I said was the logical consequence of, of having Slade as your commander. And, and this is the action at Maguilla on the 11th of June, 1812. So, the, the, excuse me, <clears throat> This is in the advance sort of, and the, the, you know, the operations prior to the Battle of Salamanca. And again, just talking through it fairly quickly, Slade was commanding a brigade of, of two Dragoon regiments, and he encountered a, a similar sized French brigade, both about 700 strong. Slade charged the French, um, dispersed them, which was not untypical at this point, but, but then. Um, embarked on a multi-mile chase of, of the retreating French dragoons, by which time they, they'd captured you know, a large number, a hundred plus of, of the French dragoons. Uh, but unlike the British army at this time, the French dragoons eventually retired onto their reserve, which, which came up when uh, Slade has galloped six or seven miles. He, he arrives in a mess with a whole load of winded horses to be attacked by fresh French cavalry. And they then did the gallop in reverse all the way back to where it started. Um, Slade losing all his prisoners and the French capturing uh, 118 uh, British cavalry. <coughs> Excuse me. So the you're picking up a couple of comments at the time. William Bragg, um, a cavalry officer out there, commented the general has run his whole brigade in the eagerness of pursuit into an ambush losing all his prisoners and nearly 200 of his own men i should not be surprised to hear that lord wellington has recommended him for the home department that is sending him home wellington uh, was similarly uh, unhappy furious is probably the right word i have never been more annoyed than by slade's affair it is occasioned entirely by the trick of our officers of cavalry have acquired of galloping at everything and then galloping back as fast as they gallop on the enemy. They never consider their situation, never think of manoeuvring, and when they use their armours ought to be used defensively, they never keep or provide for a reserve. <coughs> Excuse me again. So, I think you know, Wellington was justifiably furious and he commented a bit later that the Royal Dragoons and the 3rd Dragoon Guards were two of the best regiments and to see them you know, losing you know, killed wounded prisoners, 200 men due to Slade was not something that he could live with. In, in trying to understand and explain what happened here because on a, on a like for like basis the British cavalry had never been beaten by the French cavalry and like I said about Madden's Portuguese troops at the Battle of Gabora in 1811 that the view was that just Slade's constant panics changing his mind you know dashing forward dashing backwards his troops just had so little confidence in him 
that you know, when they got themselves in a difficult situation, uh, you know, that they weren't willing to wait to see whether Slade had anything useful to add to the situation. So yeah, it, it was probably, I think, the only time where, like for like, the British cavalry were overturned. And if that doesn't generate some, some challenge, I don't know what will. There'll definitely be some, some anger amongst, amongst our Francophile friends if they're in the comments, I'm sure. <laughs> well, it, it, will be, it will be good to get some alternate views, so that would be good. I'm going to touch on two or three other things now. Um, we're, we're kind of looking at, at the bad now. Um, <laughs> hi, Geraint. No, I'm not going as far as Tarbs, but uh, I'll try and mention it if I can. So let's start with sort of get another very well-known event, Battle of Talavera, 27th of July, 1809, and the charge of, of the 23rd Light Dragoons. So this is almost classic, like, like, like we have talked about. Uh, the 21st Light Dragoons and a King's German Legion regiment, which I can't remember, but one of the King's German Legion cavalry regiments were off on the, the Allied left flank. And, and Wellington asked, you know, ordered them to charge some advancing French in that area. As they started moving forward um, at speed, they, they came across a ditch that, were, that was hidden in all, all the tall grass in the area, which caused significant confusion. And the, the slide that's up there is one of many pictures of it. I think it's difficult now to decide how big or deep this ditch was, but the fact that a lot of the cavalry got up the other side suggest it was maybe very steep in some places but not the whole way but the thing that frustrated wellington you know from 1808 onwards was the lack of control having got across the, the this unexpected ditch both regiments continued um uh, facing a number of french infantry uh regiments in square the the, the king's german leads of this Point, had a look around and quite rightly decided this wasn't a good idea. The 23rd Light Dragoons hurtled on past the infantry squares, found some more French cavalry, attacked them, and then, as always, found themselves overwhelmed and had to come all the way back, lo lo losing sig significant numbers of officers and men along the way. So, another classic case of what really annoyed Wellington the, the, the lack of control of, of the troopers and their officers caused unnecessary casualties. <clears throat> I mean, the 23rd Light Dragoons lost in killed, wounded, prisoners, about 50% of their men. So this is what frustrated Wellington. The King's German Legion, who are always seen to be more experienced, had a lot more common sense and retired with a lot less casualties. OK, just picking up on something I said earlier about Robert Long, and I think this this is kind of along with sort of like the lack of control in charges is the other thing that gets picked up so regularly and i talked about robert long losing losing two um cavalry pickets in 1811 this this is 120 troopers lost for absolutely nothing i mean the, the first one was in april 1811 um so th this was beresford's down in, in the south of the country he's heading towards badajoz to try and retake it uh, major morris 13th light dragoons was surprised and he lost 54 men, including himself. Now, the bizarre one about this, and again, it's another of my Albuera sort of interest, is that Morris thought he was actually behind the front lines. And when he set, set his troops down for the night, he didn't think he was at any risk 
of being captured but somebody had made a mistake some people said it was uh long yeah lot long had a view with somebody else but you know morris didn't think he, he actually needed to put any pickets out and he didn't uh, and when the french advanced which beresford knew was going to happen they took this picket and got within hundreds of meters of Beresford's headquarters so even though you know Beresford knew they were coming they still got far too close so I've got a bit of sympathy with Major Morris but the second one um June 1811 Captain Lutyens 11th Light Dragoons 64 men including the captain uh they 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 managed to miss the advance of the Tour Malberg with 14 squadrons of French cavalry and managed to get themselves surrounded now this just smacks of plain incompetence which i think fits the idea about british cavalry were not trained before they got there in outpost du duties in reconnaissance duties and this just smacks of somebody not knowing how to do the basics of the job um sorry where are we are we going to talk oh yes we're, we're doing the bad ones right so an, another one i'm moving on 1812 retreat from burgos so the siege of burgos has gone up badly wellington's now found himself in amongst significantly larger friends forces which chase them back to the uh the portuguese border so venta de polzo october 1812 it, it, it's a bit of a messy skirmish but it's it's more the points that come out of it um the french advance guard were pushing very hard on on the the british rear guard uh, of the cavalry so there was a running skirmish went on over several miles with the french brigades constantly pushing and they were stronger and pushing the uh, the british uh, rear guard cavalry rear guard back the 11th light dragoons uh, picket fell back onto the regiment the regiment then fell back on the 16th light dragoons which then fell back to the river and the bridge at Venta de Pozo, where Cotton is waiting on the other side with significant support of British cavalry. Now, as always, the timing issues on these things are important. Uh, <coughs> it looks like Cotton left it too late to attack the French as they crossed the river. Uh, too many French got across. And then effectively, you know, the, the numerous French cavalry pushed the British cavalry uh sort of you know right off the field so th th this was probably one, one, one of the, the the worst actions of the british cavalry in terms of the outcome which was what they were thoroughly beaten by, by the french advance guard man for man a, a british cavalry a trooper was as good as a french cavalry trooper i'll, I'll leave it there but i think officer for officer the, 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 there was a very definite mismatch and the French officers tend to have more experience of, of, of handling troops but again with this inexperience um, sort of comment I'm just going to make one other comment in the bad pile and this is the Battle of Victoria which wasn't a cavalry battle at all but it was a comprehensive win for Wellington uh, with the French army defeated and streaming off the battle and as, as I'm sure many will know a lot of the the british troops decided that that partying and, and, and finding some loot was more important than chasing the enemy uh, and wellington was particularly furious because a number of the cavalry regiments did this when they should have been pressing the french hard as as they retreated uh, and he singled out the excuse me the, the 18th hussars who were fairly new back to the peninsula and um, you know for, for their behavior 
after the Battle of Vittoria and, and made what I think was a genuine threat that if if they did anything like that again, they'd be sent home. I've just found the quote. So uh, Wellington wrote, the 18th Hussars are a disgrace to the name of a soldier in action as well as elsewhere. And I propose to draft their horses from them and send the men to England if I cannot get better out of them. So I'm going to put this up again as this is an experience thing again. So sort of, you know, th th these guys who performed fairly well during the Corona campaign have lost sight of what their job was. And you know, the, the, the French could have suffered a, a, a more devastating defeat at Vittoria if they had been pushed hard at the end of the battle. And I, I don't know about you, Mark, but I, I, sorry to cut you off. I always wonder how much that sort of comment from Wellington really would have stung the men, you know, that must, that must have hurt them. I don't know if you've ever come across any, any testimony from the men about, about how they felt or, or from the officers, but it must have been quite, quite painful to hear that from Wellington. From Wellington. I mean, th th this, this is a, a, a written reprimand, and whilst I can't comment on, on, on that directly, yes, they would have taken it very personally to get such a direct complaint. Uh, I mentioned earlier the action at Campo Mayor in, in uh, 1811. Uh, at the end of it, the 13th Light Dragoons, um, who chased the French several miles to the walls of Badajoz uh, and then found themselves overwhelmed and had to retreat, losing uh, many French cavalry prisoners and a whole French siege train, got very, very roundly criticised in orders. Uh, and you know, they, they were very, very unhappy about that. There was probably a little bit of justification for their action, and today's not enough time to talk about it in detail. But yes, it hurt greatly when you were criticised that openly. Well, Mark, I'm aware I've kept you already for coming on to an hour, so I think maybe we should skip ahead, if you don't mind, to maybe some of the more positive, uh, you know, some of some of the skirmishes and the battles where the British cavalry did did a did a grand job. Is that something we can move on to and hear some of the more positive stories? Yeah, yes, I will. And uh, noting the time, we, we we will skip over them. But again, just to get the theme, and I'll, I'll try and bring out the themes of them as we go through. So. Going back to Moore's retreat, we have we have three actions that tend to get mentioned. So Paget's the the officer in charge of the cavalry in the rear guard, and he performs this task very well. So the first one, Sahagun, twenty first of December, we have the tenth Hussars, fifteenth Hussars, um, planning an ambush and attack on, on on French in in the the town of Sahagun. It was a it was a dawn attack with Slade driving them out of the town. And then Padgett was going to cut them off and destroy them with the 15th Hussars. Um, Slade has always made a complete mess of it and never turned up. So Padgett did the whole job by himself, um, breaking the French Hussars and taking many prisoners. So, yeah, a, a positive action. This is small scale. This is regimental scale. So this works really well. And Paget noted at the time, brilliant action, but he made a comment about there was some loss of control, which you know, I gave them all a good telling off after. A couple of days later, Mayorga, um, another small cavalry action, a couple of squadrons of the 10th Hussars. Slade was much more interested in, in, in tightening the girth on his saddle. Uh, and in, eventually, in frustration, Paget ordered the regimental colonel of the charge who broke the French. So again, small scale actions, man for man, the, the British cavalry is still doing very well. 
<coughs> a few days later again, Benevente, another one that's well known. French advance guard under Leifborough, Desnouet. Uh, chasseurs of the Imperial Guard with them, crossing the river because the bridge has been blown. Um, that they, they, they push back the picket and head towards Benevente, where they are charged again by the 10th and 18th Hussars. Uh, broken, but 70 prisoners taking, including Leif Bredesnouet. So a good action again, um, still relatively small scale, but in man for man, the British are still showing they can do the job. Skipping on, Yuzagra, this is May 1811. This is in the south. This is Lumley still commanding Beresford's cavalry. Um, the French put forward uh, an advance guard to see where the, the Allies were and approached the town of Yuzagra, which had a huge ravine and a small bridge. Lumley waited for the, for the first units of the French to come across and then charged them and trapped them against the bridge. The, 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 the charge was entirely successful. The French lost about 250 against 20 of the Allies. So this is a classic planned attack executed well. Um, still fairly small numbers again, but we've got somebody in charge who seems to know what he's doing uh, and it shows immediately. Uh, where are we? Villa Garcia, April 1812. So this is, this is the advance to Salamanca. Uh, we now have Cotton commanding the, the, the cavalry overall. Um, sorry, I'm just getting my bed. Oh, yes, right. So uh, two, two cavalry brigades present, Ponsonby's and the Marchand's brigade. So this is the Marchand's first action. Ponsonby's driving the, the French cavalry uh, and attack him in the front. Le Marchand is moving around their flank, constantly forcing the French to retreat. And over several miles, the French were driven back onto their reserves, which the British then charged and broke. French cavalry's significantly more than the British. So this again appears to be a, a, a well thought through and executed uh, activity. Brigade size. So this is the first time you've got British cavalry moving in larger numbers. But it was also the first time the British had that sort of number of cavalry. So uh, this was very good. And the one that most people talk about, we have the Battle of Salamanca, July 1812. Uh, Wellington had really won the battle by the time the cavalry got involved. Um, when Wellington ordered his general attack late in the day, Le Marchand was, was following close behind Leith's infantry division uh, on, on, on the French. Because the cavalry were present, the French force formed square to protect themselves. The infantry then... then caused massive injury firing at them. And as the French uh, infantry regiment started wavering, Le Marchand charged and, and broke three infantry regiments. So again, it, it, it's using the tactics properly. It seems to be well organized you know, with the shock effect that, that heavy cavalry can bring. Sadly, Le Marchand was killed later in that battle. What's maybe not quite so well known uh, at Salamanca, there was another action uh, involving Portuguese cavalry commanded by Benjamin Durban, who were following Pakenham's 3rd Division. Um, and they found Tomier's division. And really a similar sort of thing happened where the British infantry were attacking uh, and Durban seized an opportunity to, uh, to attack 
one of the French infantry regiments, which disorganised uh, the whole of, of the French infantry, uh, and the, the, then the British infantry moved forward. So again, something that, that seems to be better worked out and better thought through. Uh, I'm going to mention Garcia Hernandez quickly because it's it's it is said that this is the only time during the war where cavalry broke an infantry square, which it absolutely did with with significant impact. But if you throw a half ton dead horse at a square, it does tend to make a bit of a hole, which the rest of the cavalry followed through. Yeah, that, that was facetious. <laughs> but but what what I must put in the positive, and it goes a little bit against what I've been saying. By the time we get through to you know, late 1810, 1811, 1812, some of the cavalry units are getting quite effective, particularly the light cavalry units at their primary duty, which is outpost work and reconnaissance. So from you know, Messina's third invasion, so autumn 1810, you've got uh, cavalry officers like, like Cox, like Tomkinson, like Crouchenberg, who, who are managing the outposts, who are skirmishing with the French daily, they're doing reconnaissance, keeping well me informed what's going on. By the time you get two or three years into the war, some of these units are getting very efficient at the day job. And we must never forget the day job was reconnaissance and outpost work, not charging other French cavalry. So, yeah, I think that's a, excuse the awful pun, but that's a very quick gallop through some of the, the high points and the low points of the British cavalry. So folks, this is where I lost comms with Mark and we weren't able to finish the interview in the way that I would have liked. But I do have his notes here, they're up on screen and you can listen to them on the podcast. He says, British cavalry generally fought well when facing similar numbers. He also said there was a frequent tendency to lose control during charges and skirmishes. That one we've definitely covered well there. And then, and he has touched on it, but it's very important. I did an interview with Marcus Cribb a couple of years ago where we discussed something similar. And that's that their role in outpost work and reconnaissance is massively undervalued. We talk about the big battles. We talk about the famous charges. What we don't talk about is four blokes sat on a hill throughout the night watching for the enemy. And that sort of thing was super important. Special thanks to Mark for persevering despite all our technical problems. Please do check out his books. I'll put links to some of those in the description below. I will be back on Friday, this coming Friday, if you're watching the YouTube version of this. And I'll be back next Monday if you're looking at the podcast version, listening to that. All right, take care, guys.